In a brief 2015 op-ed to the New York Times, Michael Shermer wrote concerning the possibility of supernatural or paranormal phenomena being real, as interesting as such experiences are to read about, from a scientific, scientific perspective, they mean nothing, because there's no such thing as the paranormal or the supernatural. There's just the normal, the natural and mysteries we have yet to solve with normal and natural explanations. Until such time, as we can provide natural explanations for apparently supernatural phenomena, we need do nothing with such stories, because in science we'll never be able to explain everything. There is always residue of unexplained phenomena, and in science it's okay to simply say, I don't know, and leave it at that. Unexplained does not equal supernatural. In a very real sense, we can agree with Shermer that I don't know is an acceptable answer to unexplained phenomena. If in science, so too in religion, there are truly things our minds cannot comprehend. Yet, for our part, when it comes to the miraculous, indeed the supernatural, deeds recorded in Scripture, we are compelled to not simply leave it at that. While I don't know may be the honest confession of one who is humble in mind and spirit, we hold out still a, trans a more transcendent confession, don't we? That though we understand only in part, belief in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is still warranted. He is worthy of our thoughts, our affections, even our very lives. So then... This life, our lives, are framed by the seemingly paradoxical commitments to knowing and completely on the one hand, and yet believing fully on the other. This is the sort of tension we walk into in our passage in Matthew today. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to the book of Matthew with me. We'll be in Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. If you do not have a Bible, one is available to you underneath the seat in front of you. Be happy for you to use that. And if you don't own a Bible, we have one for you. You can visit the table in the back and be sure to pick that up on your way out today. If you're brand new to reading the Bible, the book of Matthew is at the beginning of the New Testament. We have the Old and New Testaments. For several months now, we've been in a series going through the book of Matthew. As you turn there, the larger numbers are chapter numbers, and the smaller numbers are verses. So we'll be in Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. And we want to begin this morning, before reading the passage, considering in part, what are the aims of our time together? What are some of the goals we have in the preaching of God's word? What are some of the goals we have in the hearing of God's word, the hearing of God's word preached? Well, from my vantage... I desire to commend to you truth that is found in God's word, to impart to you truth that is found in God's word, to roll away, as it were, any fog or confusion that may accompany the text, to plunge beneath the surface a bit in search of treasure that is here, picking it out, laying it bare for us to see, consider, marvel at. And for your part, as you hear the word of God preached, as you listen today, stay engaged in the task of active listening, 
discerning, as Curtis taught us from the passage last week, what is the truth found in Scripture? How does it accord with what's being preached from this pulpit? Digging two for gold there, seeking to ascertain what is the truth that is found in God's Word. And in addition to that, as you're listening today, kind of reading through the passage yourself, Perhaps later this afternoon, you recall something to mind that's been said in here, or you recall something from this passage to mind, or perhaps later this week, randomness, you're out on a walk in your, in your neighborhood, and you think about something from this Sunday and this sermon and this passage, it is my desire that at some point along the way that you would think serious thoughts about God, that you would think serious thoughts about God and about his word, that you would think seriously about Jesus Christ and who this God-man is that we claim to follow. Perhaps you're a more seasoned believer in the room today. You've been at this for years. This is sort of your MO. I tell you, think serious thoughts about God, you say done, check. For you, in Matthew chapter eight, there's an opportunity then to once more consider the supernatural authority of our Lord and Savior and how he wields that authority in service to others. A fact which we find significant and important. Maybe you're here and you're just beginning to ask questions. Perhaps it's your first or second time, second visit to a church, and you're just dipping your toe in the water, seeking to discover what is it about this man, Jesus Christ, that has captivated the hearts and minds of so many people for millennia, even here 2,000 years after his death and resurrection. What is it? about this man. If that's you today, I'd ask you a simple request that for a moment that you would lay down your priors, setting aside for a moment any preconceived notion or commitment you may have to simply explaining this all away, letting your I don't know be the final word. And to instead, as we go through this passage today, to hear the testimonies of those who have encountered Jesus and the claims that Jesus himself is making and those that are made about him, it would not be odd for you if you found something startling today about Jesus. It wouldn't be odd if you stumbled over what you previously thought you knew was true about him. It wouldn't be odd if you found something unique about him, something worthy of further consideration, Worthy of more questions asked, worthy of your time, your attention, even your affections. And this is the sort of tension we walk into in our passage in Matthew. If you'll remember last week, the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, recall how it ended. Jesus teaches this sermon from the hillside, comes down from the hill. And the crowd there, they're realizing that Jesus is altogether different among those who have taught him, taught them. They realize there is something unique about him. He is one who's teaching with authority. And this set him apart in their minds. And what we find is the book of Matthew is sort of a series of revelation after revelation. These eye-opening realizations that people have concerning the identity of Jesus. So here in Matthew 8, verse 1, we find that Jesus has come down from the mountain. An act in and of itself that is remarkable. He will not be a teacher who merely communicates profound ideas from a a hillside and yet leaves his person and the content of his teaching inaccessible and unapproachable. He's going to teach these profound ideas, life-changing truths, and then he is going to come down from the mountain. 
He's going to have dealings, we'll see, with ordinary people. And what we find most curious about Jesus' dealings with people is that it's not just ordinary people that he's dealing with, but often it's those who don't seem to warrant his attention in the first place. In fact, it's the least likely people that Jesus deals with in his day-to-day ministry. So Jesus here bursts onto the scene, teaches this sort of ethics-based sermon about the glory of God on the hillside, and a massive crowd has gathered there to listen. He comes down from the hillside, and the text indicates, Matthew 8, that a large crowd has followed him. So note the uniqueness of the scene here. So the modern-day equivalent is that I stand here, and I talk for as long as I'm going to talk, the indiscriminate sermon length, right? And I do this, and then I walk out the door, and all of you follow me. And not only that, but we're on the lawn and you say, Mike, please keep talking. It's not going to happen, is it? And yet, what we find is that Jesus has come down from the hillside and the crowd is there behind him. He captivates the hearts and minds of those who listen to him teach. And it's an amazing thing about him. What we find in the next series of verses is not necessarily chronological, but it's a series of topical illustrations or episodes that Matthew is using to show that not only is Jesus teaching with authority, but he is now demonstrating that authority amongst ordinary people and among those who are least likely to garner his attention. So Matthew employs these series of illustrations that we'll go through and discuss. And we'll learn through the passage that Jesus has all authority on earth as he does in heaven. Therefore, we can trust him. And we can follow after him as he demonstrates that authority in service to others. These episodes recount historical earthly events that are laden with spiritual meaning. So while we watch the hands of Jesus at work, we ultimately let our minds and our hearts wander, as it were, to the heart of the message being communicated. The theological principles that are undergirding this narrative in Matthew We allow these earthly examples to channel our minds and our hearts towards spiritual realities, sort of trajectory we find common in Matthew's narrative. So let's read the text together. Matthew 8, we'll start in verse 2. And behold, a leper came to Jesus and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Verse five, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you with no one in Israel, have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This, Matthew writes, verse 17, was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, that he took our illnesses and he bore our diseases. So we consider the first of these episodes. We have a leper who's come into Jesus' presence. He makes a request of Jesus that we want to pay close attention to. But first, we should note the complexity of the situation as a whole, shouldn't we? <clears throat> Much investigative work has been done on first century disease and leprosy. So the term leprosy used here, probably referring to any number of skin diseases, a general referent here. But what we understand from first century context is that the physical and the social implications of the disease are stark. The Jewish people loathed the disease, and they didn't think too kindly of those who had acquired it. Both the ones suffering from the illness and any that they came into contact to were declared ceremonially unclean. And the Old Testament law, which we see Jesus reference in verse 4, makes clear provisions, specific provisions and clear procedures related to those who have contracted leprosy or another such skin disease. Suffice to say, it's a complex issue. There's complication here. And yet we find the leper's plea curious, don't we? The man approaches Jesus. He kneels before him, we find, in reverence. And he asserts, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. So clearly, this man has in mind a remedy, doesn't he? He wants to be healed. It makes all the sense in the world. And yet, what we find in requesting the remedy, asking of Jesus for the remedy, in his declaration, we note the man's understanding of who Jesus is. We note his understanding of what Jesus is capable of. Not only is he going to Jesus for the remedy, he's on to the fact that Jesus is the one who can offer it. In his request, the man is presupposing Jesus' ability to do the very thing that he asks. Thus, he approaches Jesus, confident that he can heal, but he's still unconvinced that Jesus will do it. It's a matter of will. In a very real sense, though the man's faith is not yet full-bodied, he is putting his faith in much more than a simple outcome, isn't he? He's putting his faith in a person. He's putting his faith in Jesus, believing that Jesus can do what he says he'll do. And yet, upon this realization, perhaps because of it, the man feels unworthy. Every other contextual factor in this man's life points to his unworthiness, doesn't it? In his neighborhood, he's shunned. In his community, an outcast. His physical condition, he's set apart. Everything in this man's life points to his unworthiness. What reason does he have not to think that Jesus will simply pass him by? Lord, I know you can, but I'm not sure that you will do this. But what we continually learn through watching Jesus, through bearing witness to the Messiah's ministry, 
Is that an individual's awareness of his or her own unworthiness is the very thing that warrants, that often garners Jesus' attention. He often puts the proud at length, or he humbles them. And those who are already humble, he invites them to come close. A word for us today. If you're feeling unworthy, then Jesus has you right where he wants you. If you're feeling unworthy of Jesus' presence, he's not pushing you further away. He is inviting you today. That unworthiness is the exact thing that Jesus is looking for. Come closer. Come closer. Feeling unworthy? He's got you right where he wants you. This leper's plea, Lord, if you will, you can. You can do it. I'm not certain I'm worthy of it, but I know that you can do it. What a remarkable request, Jesus Christ. Jesus, you are able. Will you? Will you do it? In contrast to the complexity of the situation, the leper's condition, his request, we note, too, the relative simplicity of Jesus' response, don't we? In verse 3, And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. Well, come on, Jesus. We were expecting a a bit of a larger discourse here. We wanted a profound statement and a point for you to drive home, some grand statement about your identity, about who you are, about what you came for. And yet, what we have is I will be clean. And we find that Jesus is both honored by the man's recognition of his power and his authority, And he satisfies the man's curiosity, answers his request in a simple way. Yet he does so in a way that has further implications. You see, it's curious that Jesus, when he healed the man, he touched him. The act that must not be performed, right? Remember, having leprosy has deep implications societally. Touching a leper has consequences, Beyond merely the physical results of touching a leper and the danger of the disease that that is inherent there, legally, one who touches the leper is unclean as well. A lot is riding on this. Socially, they're outcasts. And yet, in touching this man, Jesus does as Jesus does. He transcends physical and legal, social norms. Jesus is a man, then, who teaches, both teaches with authority and he demonstrates this authority in service to others. Quite aware of the background here, Jesus makes what seems to be an odd request of the leper in verse 4. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. And so we know even here a contrast in Jesus' method and his ways, perhaps in comparison even to to instances of healing in today's times, in our modern world. The secrecy which pervades Jesus' ministry is uh, a bit different, we should say, than healing ministries which garner sections on television channels, including a number that you can call into and give. In contrast to telling the world about what's happening and making it known that this healing is occurring, Jesus requests of the man, see that you say nothing to anyone. This secrecy is a recurring theme in the supernatural ministry of Jesus. Jesus' demonstration of his power and authority is carried out then with a specific end in mind. It's not about the healing itself, is it? Jesus isn't healing for healing's sake. 
Later, Jesus won't calm a storm because storms in general need to be calmed. Jesus is doing all of this with a specific end in mind, driving the story to its intended end. Everything Jesus is doing is confirming the very claims made by him and about him, that he truly is the Son of God. And at this point, the narrative, Matthew's story, that this reality is unfolding before the Jewish people. And Jesus' methods here would undoubtedly be seen as an offense to civic and religious leaders, those who had earthly authority only, not understanding that there are spiritual things at stake. And so, despite the outrageousness of the episode, Jesus commands that the leper keep quiet and that he proceed forth with the cultural legal norms of the day, presenting himself before a priest to be confirmed clean and to present a sacrificial gift there. These things Jesus says will be a proof to them, likely a proof that Jesus does not intend to rock the boat completely, that he does not intend to do away with the law in tow. And yet what we know about Jesus, and in accordance with his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, is that though Jesus will not do away with the law completely, that he's going to have the leper abide by it still, he is the one who has come to fulfill it. And the path is being made. A trail is being blazed. And in Jesus, there truly is a better way. There truly is a better way. The second episode in verse 5, Jesus enters the town of Capernaum and a Roman centurion approaches him with a similar request. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home and he's suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, I will come and I will heal him. We note here the request made on behalf of another The centurion here has at least some inkling of Jesus' ability to heal, doesn't he? He understands the, the implications of paralysis and what's going on here. And yet he also understands that there is one in whose midst, in his midst, might be able to deal with a problem. We note the complexity of the issue too. Paralysis and all that is entailed by it, socially, physically, And what is more here, the the undergirding narrative here is that the centurion is a Gentile. He's not an Israelite. And so even the sheer fact that he is communicating or interacting with the Jewish teacher, Jesus, is fraught with legal and social complications. And yet, these things considered, and despite a lack of a well-rounded knowledge of Jesus' identity, the centurion recognizes that Jesus might just be able to deal with a problem. And he's right. Indeed, Jesus can and he will. And so we know Jesus' simplistic response once again, I will come and I'll heal him. But immediately we gather that the centurion is getting a little bit more in this response than he bargained for. And so he's a little put back. Jesus, I just wanted you to heal him. But coming into my home to do so is another matter completely. And we find the centurion in that same spot as the leper, sensing, realizing his own unworthiness to be in Jesus' presence. And yet, what we learn from the leper story is true about this one as well. It's that that unworthiness is going to invite Jesus to come closer. It's going to invite Jesus' presence. He wants to come into his home. He wants to heal him. 
Upon realizing Jesus would not only heal his servant, but would visit him to do so, the centurion is struck by his own unworthiness. And yet, in acknowledging his unworthiness, he recognizes Jesus' power and his authority, doesn't he? Does something remarkable. Though I'm low and not worthy of your presence, though I'm low and unworthy and not worthy of you being near me, Lord, you could actually just say a word and get the job done. Jesus, I know you can do it. And what is more, the centurion even has some sense of context for Jesus' kind of authority, doesn't he? In verse 9, for I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Because of his day job, the centurion kind of has a grasp of what Jesus is about and how his authority works. Just as Jesus' authority is derived, so his is too. And yet, what, what the centurion realizes is that the authority Jesus wields is altogether different than that that he possesses. And so on the basis of this understanding, the centurion knows that Jesus is different. It's on the basis of this understanding that the centurion's faith is expressed. We find in Jesus' response here in verse 10, a reaction perhaps quite unexpected. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. Jesus was amazed. Could you imagine being the one who said something that Jesus said wow to? He was amazed at the man's response. And Jesus turns to those following him and he says, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. So the Israelites had been following God, obeying him almost to a T. And yet this Gentile comes into Jesus' presence and expresses faith unlike that which Jesus had seen anywhere. The Gentile centurion, who counted himself unworthy, demonstrates faith the likes of which Jesus had not seen in all of Israel. Constantly, what we find in the life and the ministry of Jesus is that he is turning what is expected, what is predictable, on its head. And he does the opposite. Note here, too, the kind of faith that amazes Jesus. This isn't the centurion drumming up a little more confidence in himself, is it? This isn't the the servant drumming up a little more confidence, a little more self-worth, and realizing, hey, I actually can do this. This isn't self-derived, self-motivated, or self-sustained belief, nor is it faith in general. The centurion's faith is faith that is in Jesus. It's faith in Jesus' authority and his ability to do what he says he will do. Stanley Horace writes that the faith that Jesus praises, exemplified by the centurion, is that which trusts that Jesus is who he says he is, and that he'll do what he says he will do. Jesus doubles down on the moment here in the subsequent verses, using the centurion's faith as an example. This Gentile has come to him and has expressed faith that he hasn't seen in all of Israel. Verses 11 and 12, Jesus uses for as sort of a broader consideration for the widespread availability of the gospel. The Israelites had had the corner on the market. Now a Gentile has come and it has expressed faith greater than theirs. 
In verse 10, Jesus said, or in verse 11, he says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus here is envisioning the messianic banquet. In the last day, comprised of guests from among those not ordinarily considered to be among the people of God. And so while the Jewish population traditionally laid claim to admittance into the kingdom, Jesus is turning it on his head. The invitation is now broader. Gentiles are now welcomed in, as evidenced by this Gentile centurion. The conditions for entry into the kingdom of heaven in Christ are now more clearly understood. Everything is a sign and a point or two. Verse 13 records Jesus' response to the centurion. Amazed at the faith, of the, uh, amazed at the man's faith, Jesus says, go and let it be done for you what? As you have believed. Jesus' response here is not to any condition or merit or qualification inherent of the man, is it? But based on his belief, his faith, and the servant was healed at that very moment. We learn, learn here a startling truth about our Savior. That in order to enact Jesus or cause Jesus to act, that the, the play here is not to bring Jesus everything we think we have to offer him and hope beyond all hope that he might do something. Sometimes the very thing, or oftentimes the very thing that Jesus is expecting of us, desiring from us, is for us simply to confess and express our need of him. That our only offer be that we need him. Jesus, I don't have much. I don't know much. I can't do much. But I know this one thing. I need you. And therein, Jesus begins to work, begins to move, begins to act. Our only offer is our need before him. And he honors that request. Matthew's third episode finds Jesus in verse 14, entering the home of his disciple, Peter, And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and she began to serve him. The general pattern here still holds. Jesus demonstrates power and authority to heal on behalf of and in service to others. She's lying there sick with a fever. Jesus recognizes this, touches her, heals her. Note here, too, the woman's response. Immediately she began, uh, she rose and began to serve him. The immediacy of Jesus' healing ability is vivid here. And yet what a fitting response to the demonstration of the Lord's power and authority. Again, Jesus is not acting in accordance with any merit or condition in the situation. He's not seeing anything that's especially worthy of a response based on either her reputation, what people in the culture think of her more broadly, Her status as a relative of Peter, he's acting there. His healing needs to be accomplished. And so, too, the woman's response to to her being healed is not conditioned upon who she is. A relative of Peter, some high status that now that I'm healed, I need to recognize Jesus' authority and kind of put on and demonstrate that I, I know who Jesus is now, so I'm going to serve. It's not because she's a woman. It's not because she's a mother. It's simply the glad response of someone who's been in need of Jesus, who got Jesus, and now she goes and she serves him. 
What a glad response to the demonstration of Jesus' power. Later in the evening, verse 16, and I love kind of the catch-all here. Matthew's been giving individual example after individual example, saying, look at all the amazing things that Jesus did. Check out Jesus' healing ministry, individual, individual, individual. And he says, oh, by the way, later that evening in verse 16, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, right? Ratcheting it up here. Many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with the word, and he healed all who were sick. Don't we just love Matthew's, oh, by the way? If those healing episodes and instances weren't enough to move the needle, look what happened in the whole town. He brings many who are sick and he heals them all. Most scholars believe that roughly two years of Jesus' ministry were spent in instances like these. Though not all recorded, Jesus spent roughly two years engaged in healing ministry interacting with people in this way. Could you imagine the societal impact of Jesus walking around and healing all who were sick in different locales? Doesn't this warrant the attention, the gaze of society writ large? Surely this contributed to sort of the murmuring and the hearsay that characterized his later ministry. Jesus here is fundamentally reorienting how these people perceive life itself how it functions, how it works. Before moving to mention of the prophecy in Isaiah here, I think it's worth mentioning that we find in these particular verses no pattern or prescription for immediate or mass healing. Those issues can sort of be dealt with systematically with other verses in Scripture and sort of put together, and that discussion can be had. But what's not offered here in this particular passage in Matthew 8 is... Uh, sort of a command for us to go out or the majority of us to go out and to spend our days involved in trying to heal the masses. There would be significant problems with that. So we don't use this verse as evidence to that fact. One of the problems, most notable, is probably the qualification for doing such. If we were to use this passage alone for justification for doing something like that, then we go through qualifications. Well, who can go and do it? Jesus' first qualification is that he is the son of God. If that's our checklist, we're off to a bad start. The Son of God can do these things. Not everyone can. Therefore, we don't employ these verses to that end. So we need to be careful about how we wield biblical truth and biblical authority. Rather, this particular account is given as reflection, we find in verse 17, is given as reflection on the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. It's not an end unto itself. The, miracle, the miracles and miraculous instances here aren't self-sufficient. They're all pointing to a grander narrative, a larger story. And Matthew indicates as such in verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and he bore our diseases. Here in verse 17, Matthew employs a version of Isaiah's prophecy. We'll read it in a second and see how it differs but he employs a version of Isaiah's prophecy to proclaim that these are the types of things that the Messiah does. And here we're reminded of one of the penultimate glorious truths concerning our Bibles, that Jesus Christ is the through line of Scripture, that he is taking its component parts and he is tying them and holding them together. That in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the narrative of Scripture coheres. It's pulled together. 
culminates here. Jesus wasn't walking around with a checklist in his life saying, oh, the Old Testament prophecy says we should travel here. We should go there. Oh, the Old Testament prophecy says I should do this. Let me do that in order to fulfill it. No, Jesus was doing as the Messiah does. So it's no coincidence then that as he's doing it, that the Old Testament is being fulfilled. This is the sovereign plan of God unfolding in real time. Oops, sorry. The scriptures have testified then to his coming, what his ministry would consist of when he arrived. In Jesus, the narrative coheres. And Jesus' miracles then form one part, but are a critical element of the story in tow, of this unfolding story. Pastor and author Tim Keller provides a sort of helpful framework for considering Jesus' miracles. So in essence, what we have is this grander narrative of God's salvation in the world, and then we are left to dealt with sort of Jesus' miraculous doings, and we wonder, we ask ourselves, how do those fit in? How do those make the narrative make sense? Tim Keller says that Jesus' miracles are three things. They are a proof, they're a pointer, and they're a pattern. They're a proof, a pointer, and a pattern. They're proof of who he is. There are real occurrences. It would be consistent with one who claims to be the son of God. Thus, Jesus' miracle working is not miracle working for miracle working's sake. They're evidence and proof the claims that he makes about himself and the claims that others make about him. At base, Jesus' miracles are proof of who he is. In addition to being a proof, Jesus' miracles are a pointer. Keller says a pointer to where the world has been and where Jesus intends to take it. They're a pointer in two ways. Consider for a moment Keller offers that the results and the effects of Jesus' miracle working are not the most outlandish, unnatural feature of these episodes. The fact that he's doing healing is not the most odd thing about what we're reading. The disease is. The sickness is. The infirmity is. These are the things that are out of place. Not Jesus enacting against them. Sickness mars our world. Disease is the stain on the story. From the outset of creation, life devoid of those things was the norm. And so what we find in Jesus is not him doing something that is extracurricular here. He's merely setting things back to rights. Jesus' miracles and his doing is a pointer back to how the world once was. And he's making it so. Thus, it is also a pointer to where he intends to take the world. It will be that way again. And in Jesus' healing ministry, his compassion, his authority, his power demonstrated. We see him setting all things to rights. Lastly, Jesus' miracles are a pattern for how he came to save. They're a pattern for how he came to save. The factual historical narrative is here recorded for us to read about, to consider, to grapple with, and to marvel at. All the while, underneath, alongside, in and through the story, is deeper meaning, theological meaning. We're reminded here in a verse like verse 17 that Scripture has two authors, right? One, Matthew, a human author, He's recording the narrative events. And one author who's divine. So while Matthew is recounting the steps that Jesus took, 
the words that Jesus said, the Holy Spirit is telling us something also. He's inspired Matthew to write. And the Spirit is telling us through Matthew's narrative that the words and the ways of Jesus mean more than people were merely healed of their infirmities and their sicknesses and their disease. When quoted in part, Scripture, though not always, it often implies that a prophecy is fulfilled in full. And so Matthew employs a verse from Isaiah here in verse 17 that he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So let's take a look at that prophecy in Isaiah and we'll bring this to a close. If you'll turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53, we'll take a brief look at what Matthew is pulling into the story. Isaiah chapter 53 Verses 1 through 6, we learn too that when we turn to the book of Isaiah, that there is a right way to read Isaiah. Luke tells the men on the road to Emmaus, or Jesus tells the men on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, that when we read Old Testament scriptures, we do so, we read them concerning him. Therefore, when we open up the book of Isaiah as Christians, we read it with the understanding that Isaiah is pointing to this man, to Jesus Christ. And here's what it says about him. Isaiah 53, verse 1, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Of Jesus, the prophecy says, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him. At this point in the prophecy, it makes sense then that a man like the leper or a man like the paralytic would come to Jesus, doesn't it? There's nothing appealing or attractive about Jesus, nothing comely about him, the scripture says, nothing that people would desire. And so too with the leper with a paralytic. So it makes sense then that these people would be the kind of people coming to Jesus with their need. Jesus can identify with it. He can relate to it. It makes sense that when the leper shunned by his community and the Gentile Roman centurion speaking on behalf of his servant acknowledged their own unworthiness, unattractiveness before people, that this sort of humility warrants the gaze and the attention of Jesus. There's nothing appealing, pleasant, or comely about him. It begins to make sense that those with complex conditions would seek out Jesus for the solution. And it's these earthly realities that are parlayed by Matthew using Isaiah over on spiritual realities. Isaiah 53, 4 is the verse that he quotes when he calls sickness and diseases as a pointer to deeper spiritual realities described here in Isaiah. And he quotes verse 4, which says, Surely Jesus has borne our griefs, and he's carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But, verse 5, Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Listen. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. 
And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So what we find here is that earthly sickness and infirmity, even when we don't understand them fully, speak to a deeper grief and the deeper sorrow of our eternal condition apart from Christ and the mending work of our dear Savior. The earthly occurrences and the healing authority of Jesus make sense of the grander narrative in which sin is ultimately what ails us. Writing of the incarnation and other similar miracles, such as the ones we're dealing with today, C.S. Lewis employs an illustration I find helpful in thinking about Jesus' miracles. And he casts it in this way, imagining that you own parts of a narrative, parts of a story, a book, or a symphony. And just at the point at which you're thinking you're making sense of kind of the main point of the story or the main point of the symphony of the musical piece, someone approaches you with missing parts of the story. I've got a missing chapter. I've got pieces, missing progression, something that was missing in the musical piece. C.S. Lewis says, when that person brings that missing piece of the story, the symphony to you, if it does not belong, it will readily make sense that it should not be there. It would be apparent, it would be obvious. C.S. Lewis here is writing about the miracles of Jesus the incarnation and other such miracles saying that when we consider the grander narrative, we're beginning to grasp its meaning. We're suddenly hit with these miraculous instances, these stories of Jesus doing amazing things in the midst of people. And we're left then to deal with the question of how they fit. Do they belong? Do supernatural phenomena exist? And what do we make of it? Lewis says, when you bring that missing piece, when you bring those miracles into the grander narrative, it would be obvious if they didn't belong there. But if they make sense of the story, that will be apparent too. He writes, if it were genuine, but if it were genuine, then at every fresh hearing of the music, every fresh reading of the book, we should find it, the idea that Jesus did miracles settling down making himself more at home and eliciting significance from all sorts of details in the whole work which we had hitherto neglected. Even though the new central chapter or main piece contained great difficulties in itself, we should still think it genuine, provided that it continually removed difficulties elsewhere. And what he's saying about Jesus' miracles is that if they don't belong, then it won't make sense. But if they speak to higher reality, and shed light on something we did not yet fully understand, then it would make a perfect sense that Jesus would come as the Messiah and that he would do these sorts of miracles. Jesus unlocks the story. Lewis continues and says, instead of a symphony or novel, we have the whole mass of our knowledge. We have our whole understanding of the grander narrative here. And he says the credibility will depend not on the extent to which the doctrine, the miracles if accepted, can, he says the credibility will depend on the extent to which the doctrine can illuminate and integrate our understanding. What Lewis is saying there is that the miracles, if they serve a purpose, make perfect sense, that the credibility of them will not depend on our complete understanding of what exactly it is that Jesus has done. There's a broader narrative, a broader picture here. 
He says it's much less important that the doctrine, the miracles themselves, should be fully comprehensible. It's much less important that every minutia, every detail makes sense. He says we believe that the sun is in the sky, not because we can see the sun clearly, because we can't, but, we can, but because we can see everything else by it. And so too with the miracles of Jesus. Many of us may not understand what is at stake biologically or physiologically with the miracles that Jesus is performing. And Lewis is saying that that understanding actually is not required in order for us to believe. Because there's a bigger story, a bigger picture, a grander narrative at play. As we consider Jesus' miracles, we note how they point to the grander story. One option to this reality is I don't know. Therefore, it didn't happen. I don't know how he did it. I don't know how he heals a person. Therefore, it doesn't exist. It didn't happen. Option two is to ask the question, what if there's more to the story? What if there's more to the story? Matthew's episodic recounting of this portion of Jesus' healing ministry for us is the missing chapter and the missing or the misplaced musical notes. Jesus' life illuminates and it integrates. The fulfillment of prophecy begins to unlock the narrative. The story coheres in Jesus' life and ministry. Isaiah said there will be a Messiah that comes. This is what he would look like. This is what he would do. Jesus begins to do those things, and he looks just like that. Miracles make the narrative make sense. We do not need to understand the miracles in tote. We may not understand biologically, physiologically, what's happening in them. And the overt healing of rampant disease and sickness, and yet, understood in part, these miraculous events point to a grander narrative. We can see everything else by them. We know that Jesus is who he says he is and that he'll do what he says he'll do because we see him doing it. In the narrative, Jesus heals infirmities and sickness. He takes them on, as it were. And this, Matthew says, alludes to the fulfillment of a greater story. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that though he had no sin, God made sin, Jesus to be sin for us. And the rest of the prophecy to which Matthew alludes here accords with this reality, this taking on and dealing with sin. So as we consider the leper cured of his condition... The Roman centurion's servant made well and Peter's mother-in-law being cured from her fever, our minds raised to the spiritual realities entailed here. In demonstrating his healing power and compassion toward the masses, Jesus fulfilled the prophecy, taking on illness and bearing disease. And yet what we find is that he also sets people free from ultimate malady, from sin sickness and spiritual infirmity. Granting that these earthly occurrences and Jesus' healing are all pointing to the grander narrative and the bigger story, what should be our response? Well, at least three things, and we'll close. First, considering what we've discussed here, number one, in prayer, we take the faith of the leper and we take the faith of the centurion as our example. Despite our perceived unworthiness in Jesus' presence, and based on who we know that Jesus is, we ask boldly that he do what we know he can do. We ask boldly that he do what we know he is capable of doing. And these prayers, even prayers, listen, even prayers for healing in our present day, 
We ask with confidence in his ability, yet not altogether dependent on a particular outcome. For if Jesus does not answer in the way that we hope, that fact alone does not diminish his authority and his ability and his goodness. It only assures us that he will still give us good gifts in some way that we have not yet imagined. Number two, we're reminded in this passage that suffering has a shelf life. That suffering has a shelf life. If malady and infirmity is not done away with here on earth, surely it will be dealt with in full on that day when the Lord sets all things to rights. Thus we can be confident with joy that our trials, they produce endurance. And our endurance produces character and our character produces hope. And though we've we've been set back in many ways in an earthly and a worldly sense, hope does not ultimately put us to shame because God's love for us has been poured out through his spirit whom he's given us. That all this that we see is broken one day end and all will be put back together. Lastly, number three, in confessing, I don't know, or in confessing, I do not understand, we ought to avail ourselves to the fact that a lack of full-fledged certainty does not preclude the possibility of genuine belief. We ought to avail ourselves, be open to the fact that a lack of full-fledged certainty doesn't mean that we can't believe fully. I'm not talking about naive belief here. I'm talking about full confidence in the person, the work of Jesus. I don't know the theological ins and outs, but I'm getting the sense that Jesus is who he says he is, that he's capable of doing what he says he'll do. Be mindful today of the Spirit's work in you even now with insufficient knowledge, partial and dimly lit understanding. We get the sense the leper didn't know much at all about Jesus, but he knew what he could do. We know that the centurion didn't have a grade A religious background. He wasn't bringing much to the table. And yet we see both of them come with their need. What's our good excuse for not believing? Today, if you're coming around to this reality, finally getting a sense of who Jesus is, we'd love to talk with you more about that. I'll be at the back of service or maybe engage in conversation with someone you've met here at Hope or whoever you came with. It's my sincere and earnest prayer as we consider this miracle-working Jesus, the truth that the miracles aren't miracles in and of themselves for themselves, that they speak to greater realities. It's my prayer, though we may be a people, when the time calls for it, who can humbly confess, I don't know, that we would be a people who yet say we still believe. We still believe. Let's pray together.